Okay, so we are into, as you know, our saint series. Uh, November 1st is All Saints Day. It's a, kind of a classic Christian holiday, and we're using that as kind of an excuse for the whole month of November to talk about some believers who have gone before us, some of these people who have kind of stood out in the past, and, and we've kind of focused in this year on just ordinary people. These aren't like huge heroes of the faith. Today's is pretty big, but, um, but these are people who were normal, everyday people with normal, everyday struggles who did awesome things for God. Uh, first week, we talked about Brother Lawrence, who was that soldier turned dishwasher who, uh, who set about to try and recognize the presence of God in every moment. Just be aware of it. He believed that the presence of God was always there. It wasn't something you had to like draw or do something just right to get. It was there, and all our job was to, was to recognize it and to call it out and to know that it was there. And then when your mind wanders, you... You're like, oh, wandered, and you get back to where you recognize God's presence again. And this changed him in such a way that people started coming to him and interviewing him and like, man, what is different about you? And, and they compiled all those interviews and letters and things into a book called Practicing the Presence of God. It's awesome. I recommend it if you've never read it. Um, so we talked about Brother Lawrence's life uh, first week. And then last week, um, we got into Bezalel. If you remember, we talked about um, this weird guy in the Old Testament. We don't know a ton about him. We just know he was a contemporary of Moses. And... It said that God had filled Bezalel with the spirit of God so that he could be a good craftsman and do his job well. Um, and it's this awesome thing because we, we hear that phrase all the time, filled with the spirit of God. And we usually associate it with these things like prophesying and writing scripture and parting the Red Sea and these big things. And this guy named Bezalel comes along and it says, I will, I've filled Bezalel with the spirit of God to work in all manner of craftsmanship and, uh, and metal craft. And, and so this guy was just a worker and he worked with the spirit of God and did amazing work. So we talked about our vocation. And if you remember, um, our vocation was one of the four relationships broken in the fall. Um, when Adam and Eve sinned, their, their relationship with God was broken immediately. When he showed up, they hid their relationship with each other was broken. They're pointing blame and and blaming each other. The relationship with their self was broken, that for the very first time they felt shame. They looked at themselves and were no longer comfortable with who they were. They wanted to cover up and, and not show themselves. So this relationship they had with themselves is suddenly damaged. And then the relationship with their work was broken because God put them in the garden and gave them a job, said, tend the garden, take care of it. And he gave them the job of naming the animal. Like they had work before there was sin, but now he said, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to eat. And now um, he told women that you're going to labor and toil and that raising kids is going to be hard. And, uh, and so something in this work that was already there was now damaged and it was going to be more effort. And that part of our job as a church is to redeem those four relationships, to redeem our relationship with God, to redeem our relationship with one another, to redeem our relationship with ourselves, and to redeem our relationship with our work so that we recognize our work is part of how God cares for the earth. That's how he takes care of people with our, with our effort he, uh, he cares for the earth, no matter what we're doing, all of our vocation. And tonight, we have a woman, uh, and this is awesome. Um, and it's really exciting for me. And, and I, I th- we will always do um, a woman in our saint series because um, women have shaped the church. And this is, I actually pulled up some, um, some pretty ex- uh, exciting stuff uh, on a recent survey they did. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Um, these are the religions, the kind of the major religions of the world. Uh, Catholic churches are 54% women, so there's more women than men. Evangelical Protestants, 55%. Black Protestants are 59%. And mainline churches are 55%. So pretty much all 
Christian churches are more women than men. When you look at the other religions of the world, uh, Buddhist churches, they're about 50-50, but 49% are women. Hindu, only 38% are women. Judaism, only 48%. Uh, Islam's only 35%. That's not hard to imagine. Um, and then, uh, uh, well, this one's the interesting one. Atheists and agnostics are only 43% women. And it's kind of funny because Christianity has this tendency to kind of get a black eye, like we're regressive to women, like we're the... We're kind of the, the place that keeps women down. And, but um, we're the place that women come. Like even, even in, amongst um, atheists and agnostics, the ones who, you know, can kind of do whatever they want, there's fewer women. And granted, we could, these statistics could be twisted. So I grabbed, uh, grabbed some other ones. Go ahead to the next one. This is about our actual uh, kind of behavior, like our, our spiritual practices. Um, when asked... Uh, if they believe in God, um, 87% of women did, only 78% of men. Um, the importance of faith in your life, 82% said faith paid a, a huge and important role in their life, only 73% of men. Church attendance was 73 to 64. Pray regularly, 79 to 62. Read scripture, 50 to 40. And attend uh, Bible studies, prayer groups, kind of outside church extracurricular type groups. 45% of women do only 29% men. So our church is uh, a place that women have come forever. In fact, um, nuns, like uh, monasteries, uh, I don't know if anybody has ever studied the history of, uh, of nuns, but I have. Um, that's what I do. Um, but the first nuns, and they weren't called nuns yet, they were just uh, sisters, they, but they would join monasteries. That was the very first feminist movement. Um, in that day, women had one option. They could be a wife and mom, or they could choose a less savory option, or they could stay in their father's house. That was really their only option. And then the, the monasteries, the kind of the Christian church, was the first opportunity they had. Um, if they didn't feel called to be a wife and mother, but still wanted to serve the world and do good and be in a respectable vocation, they could join a monastery, and they could serve and, and help the world. And it was kind of the first opportunity women in that culture had to serve God in a way that didn't require them, if they didn't, just didn't feel called to, to be a mom and didn't feel called to be a wife, but they could still serve God. And that didn't exist anywhere else. And so the church was kind of a, it was kind of the haven. And, and in the, all through the New Testament, we find women who are um, housing the apostles and they're housing the church. The church was meeting in their homes and they were funding it. And uh, Philip, it said that his daughters were prophetesses. We had deaconesses. Like from the very beginning, one of the things that made the church grow was that it accepted and found a place for everybody. And not all the religions of the day did that. So, uh, so we chose a woman. And our woman this, go ahead. Our woman this uh, year is Catherine Booth. Anybody know who Catherine Booth is? Anybody read about her this week just to, just to see? Nobody? Okay, that's all right. I'll teach you. Who is she? Yep, going to go to the next slide. She's the English woman who started the Salvation Army. Right, her and her husband did William. Um, this is how we both, this is how we know her the best is, is the Salvation Army, um, which is still pretty amazing. Um, the Salvation Army started as a Christian mission. It was called the East London Christian Mission. Um, go ahead and go to the next slide. Um, and to this day, uh, it still distributes over $2 billion um, to the needy, and 82% of every dollar um, actually goes directly to the poor. They have a very low um, overhead. They've always kept their overhead super low. So the majority of what you give when you throw your change in that bucket coming out of Walmart 
um, actually makes its way to the poor. Um, they are uh, they have open books and they invite the Better Business Bureau and everybody else to come in and, and look at how they run things every single year to make sure that they stay reputable. And uh, 82% um, always goes, I mean, right last year, 82% went to the poor. It varies by one or 2% every year, but last year, 82% went to the poor. Um, and so she, uh, Catherine Booth started this and well, actually, her, her, her and her husband did. Um, and we're going to get to that. I, I thought about kind of doing her life chronologically, but like most women, Catherine Booth wore many hats. She had many facets. And so I thought I would just take a facet at a time. And so some of these are going to overlap each other a little bit um, time-wise, but it, I thought it'd be easier to keep her separated by the kind of the many hats she wore. So let's go ahead uh, to the next one. So this is the early years. So Catherine Booth... Um, had scoliosis. They called it a spinal curvature back then. I don't know if they had the word scoliosis yet. All the books say she had a spinal curvature that caused her a lot of pain and um, caused some other health issues. And so she, uh, she was um, a little bit sickly as a kid. And then uh, when she was 10, she got tuberculosis, which she had for four years. It took her four years to get over TB. And so she was basically um, homebound for the, a lot of her childhood. And so she learned to read and read a ton. Um, she had read her Bible um, eight times from cover to cover by the time she was 12. And, uh, and she kind of got bored of reading the Bible. So she started to read commentary. She wrote, read almost everything uh, John Wesley wrote and she loved to read Charles Finney and some of these um, kind of early commentators, uh, British commentators. And so she was just at a very young age was getting very um, educated in uh, the things of God. And this was at a time when women had very little um, opportunity to use that stuff. They were allowed to teach kids. They were allowed to teach other women. That was about it. And so, um, so when, when she was, I think it was 14, might have been 12, um, she had her first kind of uh, awakening toward activism that was going to change her life. She, watched, she saw a police officer um, arresting a, a drunk guy on the street. And the police officer was, was kind of rough with the guy, rougher than she felt he needed to be. And so she launched a protest as a child against police brutality for, for uh, manhandling this drunk guy in the streets when she felt like what he really needed was somebody to help him up and care for him. And this police officer, I guess, thumped him with his nightstick on the head pretty good. And, and that bothered uh, uh, Catherine. And so she um, led this. Her very first protest was against police brutality. And then... Um, and then she started uh, uh, engaging um, uh, some of the people in the area. She wrote pamphlets against drinking and, and found that even at 14, her, her papers were getting published. She was actually, people were picking these up and, and publishing these in periodicals around the area. So, um, so she quickly became very socially active. And then in 1952, she met um, a traveling circuit preacher who kind of went around uh, a Methodist circuit um, in England uh, preaching uh, named William Booth. And she uh, struck up a relationship with him, but he had to hit the road again. So for three years, they were basically pen pals. And uh, while he would travel, she would write letters and he would write letters back. And they would, uh, uh, they built a relationship through these letters. Whenever he would make it back to her area, they would hang out and and uh, they found that they both uh, were very socially active. He worked amongst the poor in his circuit, usually the poorest parts of town, and he would usually go to, um, to the docks and to the, to the mills. And so he'd work with these blue-collar 
poor people, and he had a huge heart for them. And so did Catherine. The only thing they disagreed on in all their letters was she felt women should have the right to preach. And, uh, and he did not. And so they, they squared off, but um, they decided to get married anyway. And she kind of basically submitted herself to that. And, and uh, so in 1955, or 1855, sorry, they were married. Go ahead. And uh, she took to um, the domestic life. She loved being a wife and mom. She uh, wound up having eight kids. Um, and uh, that's nothing. <laughs> um, yeah, right? Uh, and she, uh, she ran a very tight house. She, uh, um, every single day, every single morning, they got up and had Bible reading and, pr- and family prayer time before they started their day. She uh, believed in peace and quiet in the house. Um, and so they had like a, a quiet hour every day where nobody was allowed to make any noise so that people could rest and enjoy some quiet. They even went so far as to pull up the floorboards um, of the upstairs and fill the floor with sawdust to create an insulator, which had to be a ridiculous fire hazard. Like nowadays, they, that would not be good. But uh, they filled the, the floorboards with sawdust so that when the kids tromped around, it didn't make too much noise downstairs because she enjoyed her peace and quiet. Um, they were... <laughs> They were pretty normal. Um, her kids played soccer and tennis and cricket, and they played tag all the time. They were outdoorsy, playful people, um, I think primarily because she didn't get to do much of that when she was a kid, so she loved seeing her kids go out and do that stuff. They had about a million pets, everything from rabbits and mice and dogs and every turtle that was ever picked up. They were one of those families that anything you find gets put in a box and because gets a name. Um, and so she... Uh, and so... Uh, and she told her kids every single day. This is my favorite thing. What if people actually have this in their head? Um, her kids were the ones who, who wrote this later, that every single day she told them, you are not in this world for yourself. You have been sent here for others, and they are waiting for you. Whew. Can you imagine if you had that like deep in your heart, if your mom told you that every single day? You are not put in this world for yourself. You have been sent here for others, and they are waiting for you. Man, that's good. Anyway, um, so for the first several years of their marriage, uh, William continued to circuit preach. So he wasn't home a lot, and, uh, and uh, she kind of took care of the house by herself. And while uh, one day she's reading a periodical, and, um, and she reads this uh, article written by a local preacher who is talking about how women were the less intellectual of the two genders, how they just weren't as smart as men, and that was why they were supposed to be in domestic work, and this just infuriated her. And so she writes this uh, really compelling article back that, that uh, any division there was in education was nurture, not nature. It was because they weren't educated the same way, had nothing to do with it, that they didn't have the capacity to learn. It was that the culture didn't allow them to do it. And, uh, and the periodical published her response. And so he responded, and so she responded. And there were so many people begging for her responses that the newspaper started paying her to write articles. And so while she's at home and William is is uh, preaching, she's writing articles and starting to get paid for it. And different periodicals were paying her. And so she actually started to see a pretty decent income come in um, off of this. And then in 1860, uh, William had uh, what they call a nervous breakdown. I don't know what that meant, but um, he, uh, he had some issues for a while. And so um, basically to provide for the family, she preached his circuit. She didn't really preach it. She would just, she traveled his circuit and, and cared for people. And and she had all of this money that she had made selling articles, and she finally got out and started to see some of the poor that uh, William was coming in contact with, and she just started giving the money she was making to these people. Technically, William's salary that the Methodist uh, 
church was paying him was enough to pay their bills. And so she started writing articles so that she could funnel it into the poor on William's circuit. And so, uh, so she was now uh, kind of having her first taste of what it felt like to take care of the poor. And she was loving it. And so uh, in, uh, I think it was, let's go ahead and go to the next slide. Um, we'll get back to the, to the mission. So <clears throat> she was a huge believer in the gospel and believed that it should change the world. That uh, she has this quote that I love. She said, it's a bad sign for the Christianity of this day that it provokes so little opposition. If there is no other evidence that things are wrong, I should know from this alone. When the church and the world can jog along together comfortably, you may be sure that something is wrong. She believed that if we were preaching the gospel, it should change things, that, that the poor should be getting fed, that things should be happening, that power structures should be overturned, like that, that the gospel should have an effect on the culture and that it shouldn't just kind of blend in and be easy. Like it should always be driving for, for a better world and for a more just world and for uh, things to be um, better for everyone. And so... <clears throat> So she believed the gospel should make those changes. And she always believed the church should, should be the ones standing up for what's right, almost hunting for injustice so that we can stand up against it. She said that you can never, um, how'd she say it? Uh, you can never improve the future without disturbing the present. You can never improve the future without disturbing the present, she said all the time, that, that if you want things to be comfortable now, they'll never be better later. The only way to make them better later is to stir up junk now um, and to constantly. So she basically was just on a, uh, on a rampage to find injustice. She uh, found sweatshops where men and women and children all worked uh, together kind of equally. But the women and children usually made about a quarter of what the men did for the same exact jobs in the same amount, amount of time, um, which drove her crazy. She was an animal rights activist. Um, she started this campaign called uh, Food for a Million, um, where she was getting uh, everyday people just to cook some meals and then getting uh, just average retail shops to use their back door to feed some of these meals. So normal people would bring the meals and then they would just use the back door of these shops to feed people. So she's set, trying to set up a soup kitchen in every single retail shop in London, hoping that they could eventually feed a million people. And they were doing soup and a three-course meal and trying to do it for um, under what today would be two bucks. Because um, she felt like the poor needed to pay something for their food. Um, she didn't like giving straight handouts. She thought that it, it raised um, people's uh, self-esteem if they paid for it. And so she, was, she wanted them to help pay for it if they could, but tried to keep it as cheap as possible um, on... Uh, Christmas and, uh, and other big holidays, they would, uh, her family and kind of her little circle of friends would uh, usually make 300 meals to distribute um, to the poor. That's how they spent their Christmas, um, was making meals for the poor. Um, she was uh, uh, kind of the biggest, most notable historical um, kind of campaign she had, was, which was against what they call matchstick women. Um, there was these matchstick factories where they would put the phosphorus on the tip of the matches. I guess they would dunk it or something and to, to, to make matches. They did it by hand. And that stuff was just toxic. It was terrible. You had like a five-year life expectancy once you went into the factory, and it was horrible. And so she went on this huge campaign to, 
uh, to get people out of these factories and change the way we did matches. She was like, if we got to go back to flint and steel, it's better than, you know, just just throwing people, you know, away so that we can have matches and a little easier fire. So, uh, so they went on this huge uh, campaign and actually did a lot um, to end uh, the use of, of phosphorus. They came up with a new material to use that was less toxic, um, and that was because of the booths. But her biggest thing was women in ministry. This was kind of her lifelong campaign because she believed, she believed in the fall. She believed women were subjected to men because of the fall, but she also believed that redemption meant we should be fixing that, that if that was something that happened because of the fall, then redemption meant we should be going the other way and we should be working back toward original equality before the fall. Like in every other way, we're trying to undo the curse of the fall. And in that way, she didn't see like we were making any headway. And she was kind of a contradiction. It'd be really interesting if she jumped in a time machine and came forward to today because she, there was absolutely nowhere she would fit in because on one hand, she believed in equality in the church, that women should have the right to every ministry a man should, should have a right to. And on the other hand, she fought to get women out of work because she believed that a woman had a unique voice in a child's life and that every mother should be a homeschooler. Like she homeschooled her kids and thought every mother should do the same. And so on one hand, she was like, women should not work. We should change our society so they can be home teaching their kids and raising their kids. And on the other hand, she was fighting for the equality of women in the church. So if you brought her here today, I have no idea what side she'd fall on. I don't know where she would be. She was uber conservative. She was a teetotaler. She was against all drinking completely. Um, but she was also like a complete animal rights activist. She eventually turned over to be a vegetarian because she didn't believe you should uh, kill animals. So it'd be really, I would love to put her on a time machine and say, who are you going to vote for? Like, it'd be really fun to know who somebody like that falls in with if she comes, because there was no category for her today. She, she fell on both sides of the line because she was just trying to live out the gospel. She was very apolitical. She didn't use politics to get anything done. She believed it should all happen through the church. It should all happen by our effort, not by voting in the right person over there to make the right decisions for me. She believed we just hit the streets and do it ourselves. And so I have absolutely no idea where she would fall politically, but she's kind of fascinating. But she believed redemption was supposed to fix things. And in, I want to say it was 64. No, it was in 1960. Go ahead. Um, or 1860. In 1860, she was at a meeting. Her husband was preaching. And at this point, he was still staunchly against women preaching. And she heard a voice say, uh, or she felt this compulsion to get up and speak. He was speaking on a, t- on a topic, and she felt like, um, I could speak to this. I've studied this. I know this. And she felt a voice go, you will make a fool out of yourself. And she, she heard this voice, you will look like a fool. Like what women stand up and preach, you'll look like an idiot. And she recognized that as the voice of the enemy. And she goes, and that's the problem. I've never been willing to look like an idiot for Jesus. And so she stood up and the whole place goes dead silent. Like, what is she doing? And she preached and it was so compelling. And it had such an impact on the people that literally in just that one sermon, her husband flipped his sides and he was like, I don't even know why I preach. You should be doing this. And so he became an advocate. Um, and it was kind of interesting. She was such a novelty um, because women just didn't preach that he would do a lot of ministry and preaching to the poor and they would send her to do the fundraising. And so she would speak in front of the rich people and they thought it was so cool that they were just giving her money. Like, that was awesome. There's a real famous newspaper quote from a guy who said, if ever I commit a crime, do not call a lawyer, call that woman. Because she was so compelling that he was like, I want her to defend me. That was good. And so, and so she became the primary fundraiser. 
And then in 1964, or 1864, I keep saying 19, wow. Um, in 64, they, they launched so that he could stop traveling. They launched the East London Christian Mission, um, which eventually became the Salvation Army. And they started preaching, street preaching to people. Um, she, uh, she has a thing on how to get out rotten egg, alcohol, turpentine, like all this stuff because it was so common because they would go out and street preach and they would do it outside the bars and people would just throw stuff on them. And so every night when William came home, he was just covered in filth and she had recipes for how to get all this stuff out of clothes because she knew that he was going to go back out the next night and just do it again. And, and, uh, and oftentimes they got arrested because street preaching was still kind of semi-illegal. A lot of times they would turn a blind eye, but if you annoyed somebody, they would arrest you and throw you in jail for a night and then they'd send you home. And and uh, so that's what they did. And it was working. They were growing like crazy. And as it grew, they quickly figured out that William was a good preacher, but not a good uh, administrator. He had no idea how to run this many people. And so Catherine took over that part. And she's the one who actually structured. And the only way she could do it was to go, what if we ran this thing like an army? What if we had ranks and we just you know, put these people under these people under these people? And that way everybody knows their job and you can just go to the person above you and blah, blah, blah. And, and so was born the Salvation Army. Um, and she never had an official position um, in the Salvation Army. She always kind of ran it from behind the scenes. But um, all of her kids, all eight of her kids, spent uh, their, pretty much their entire life serving. And they did have official positions in the Salvation Army. A couple of them were the top general or whatever the name of their thing is that runs the thing. But um, two, of her, two of her kids were. But uh, there was a point when the, the Church of England didn't like the Salvation Army. Um, but there was a point on a midweek service that somebody did a survey and there was 11,000 people in, in, uh, C of E services. And there were 17,000 people in the Salvation Army services. And so once they realized that the Salvation Army was actually having a bigger impact than them, uh, they, they dropped the fight and embraced the Salvation Army. And so, um, and so this is basically, uh, Catherine Booth. Anybody intimidated yet? Anybody like, oh, you, first you read Proverbs 31, and now you tell me about Catherine Booth. This is awesome. She was, uh, she, was, she was amazing. But here's the thing, and this is her final hat. Let's go to the next one. And this is the one I want you to catch. She struggled with all these duties. And, and when you read the history books, they're, um, they make her sound like Wonder Woman. They really do. Like, she did this, and she did that, and she cooked all these meals, and she blah, blah, blah. But when you read her journals, her journals and her letters to William, um, she said things like this. You see, I cannot get rid of the care and management of my home duties. And this sadly interferes with the quiet that I need for sermon preparation. In one spot, she said, I can't both care for the poor and keep up with my laundry. Anybody resonate with that? Yeah. And, and it became a common thing for her to say, this is too much. There's too much for me to do. I cannot do it all. And she wrestled with this. And yet she felt compelled to do it all. She, and and at, on any given day when somebody would say, how do you, like, you got to put something down. She would say, what do I put down? You tell me what I would, should put down. Am I supposed to just let the poor starve? Am I supposed to just not preach the gospel? Am I supposed to just not take care of my kids and not do my life? You tell me what to put down. Ringing any bells? Anybody feel that? So in 67, and this is the part I want you to catch, she did not do this alone. In 1967, she fired or hired her first um, uh, governess to help her raise her kids. Uh, a year later, she hired a housekeeper. 
um, to help her keep up with the house. She had a group of people called the Hallelujah Lasses, <laughs> which is an awesome English name. Um, and these were women who did street ministry with her. But it was also completely common when one of them would get overwhelmed that you would call the rest of them. They would come over and help you clean your house. And, they would, and so the Hallelujah Lasses were at her house often helping her um, to do her duties. What's funny is when we read her um, in the history books, they leave out that she had built an incredible support system. Like above everything else she did, what amazes me is the way she mobilized people to take care of each other. They helped each other. There were these people that, you know, they would be on the street one day, she would preach them the gospel, feed them a meal, get them on their feet, and then immediately put them to work. Like that lady over there needs help cleaning her house, go. And she'd push them out into the, into the, into the help. And she was amazing at building the support system. My favorite verse, I think my wife actually gave me this verse years ago, um, is in Proverbs 31. Go ahead and go to the next slide. If ever Proverbs 31 feels heavy to you, like, God, how do I do all this stuff? This woman did so much stuff. Look at, look at this verse, verse 15. She also rises while it's yet night and provides food for her household portion and her maidservants. She had servants. How much could you get done if you had servants in your house, right? That even the Proverbs 31 woman had support she had help. And yeah, she did a lot and she rose a lot, but she, she didn't do it alone. And so there's one thing that I want you to catch. And, and this is, I put this meme up. Uh, go ahead and go to the next one. Anybody ever seen this? If God is all you have, you have all you need. Anybody ever seen that meme? Anybody resonate with that? Anybody like repost that? Yeah, if you have God, you have everything you need. In fact, when I was looking for it, I love this one. Go to the next one. If God is all you have, you have all you need. James 14, 8. Anybody see the problem with that? James has five chapters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, I saw that and I was like, wait a minute, James 14? I've never even read James 14. Yeah, only has five chapters. So you got to watch what the, you got to watch the memes. But um, if you resonate with that, if God is all you have, you have all you need. And we love that. And I'm willing to, I'm going to tell you right now that is a, dead lie is absolutely wrong because I can tell you if you had God and you had him in a perfect world with no sin it was just the two of you in a garden and you had and there was no brokenness no wrongness everything was ideal you know what God would say this is not good it is not good for man to be alone when he made Adam and he put him in a perfect garden there was no sin and no brokenness God said this is not good it is not good for man to be alone. Those words came out of God's mouth when everything was perfect. There was no sin yet. And God already says, this is not good for man to be alone. We were not created to be alone. If it's just you and God, it's not good. You were made for other people. You were made for community. Every one of us was made for community. And this kind of strikes against the American individualist, independent spirit. Like, I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I'm a self-made person. I can, as long as I got God, just me and God against the world. That is not biblical. That is not biblical. In the Old Testament, the, the worst punishment they had, um, other than, than capital punishment, there were some sins they would just kill you, but other than that, the worst one they had was to isolate you. You will be put outside the camp. 
And that was the punishment for a ton of, of, of the, the sins that you could commit, a ton of the laws you could break. If you do this, I will put you outside the camp and you will be alone. And they, and they saw that as a deep threat. There was nothing that could be worse than alone because they knew that was not good. Alone is not good. The whole Torah was built on that. Nowadays, we're like, either I get what I want in this church or I go find another church. I'll just go find some other place. Like, we don't have that same, like, risk of, of above all else, I don't want to be alone. Because it's not the American way. But it's the God way. It's the Bible way. So how do we respond to this? Go ahead and go to the, yeah, I think you got to go too. You can, yeah, there we go. From the beginning, God said, it, this is not good. And he made family. We got, and he gave us four, kind of four levels of community. First was family. That he, he tied us to a group of people and said, you know, he, and, and we sometimes abuse it, but he saw Adam and he goes, I'm going to make a helper for you. Like you need, you cannot carry this load by yourself. You need help. And so he made Eve and he created family to help carry the load. And uh, Catherine often talked about how early she got her kids helping with chores and how that paid off huge dividends later in life because they were used to helping and she didn't have to carry the full load alone. Spouses, siblings, parents, we have family for a reason. It's part of God's plan. It's part of his original plan to be with our family. The second is hired help. It's in Proverbs 31. Catherine used it. I don't care if it means hiring a babysitter so you can get a night out or occasionally just paying somebody to come clean your house or some of us, it's okay to, even if you don't have major issues a few times a year to pay a counselor to just get stuff off your chest and just go in and say, I just need to vent and get some junk out. And it's, and I, I don't really want to dump on my friends. I'm going to pay you to do it. Just listen to me and tell me what you think. This is all biblical. Like you, it's, it's okay to say, I can't carry this all by myself. Third is the church. This was Israel. This is what we were talking about. The biggest threat was to be cut, apart, cut out of the people of God, to be separated from them. That the church is supposed to support us and come in to help us. And when we can't afford that housekeeper, you call the church and could anybody come over and help me straighten up my house? And the church comes in. And finally, is God himself. Is that the Holy Spirit was sent to us to be an ever-present helper. And I love, and it's, I don't want to make it weird and think that it's a gender thing because there's, God is neither and both. And, but I love that Jesus, when he talked about sending the, the Holy Spirit to us, he used that same, he drew on that metaphor from Genesis. He said, I'm going to send you a helper. When God saw Adam by himself and he goes, you know what you need? You need a helper. You need someone to help. I love that, that Jesus, when he talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit, he drew on that same picture from the Old Testament. And like, I'm going to send you a helper, someone to, to help you so that you're never alone, so that you can feel that constant presence. So when you're in the bathroom and you've got the 
the door locked and you, you're positive that demons have taken over your kids and that your house is going to fall down. Not that this happens in my house, not ever. But that while you're on the floor crying, the Holy Spirit is there with you. And he's drawing you back to community. He's drawing you back to people. And I hope the voice you, I hope what you hear the Holy Spirit telling you is call somebody. Call somebody in the church. Call some help. Get some people around you. Don't be alone. Come back. Come back. We pray every single day because it, it, it's heavy on my heart. Every single time we come in here, we pray over our kids. May they never know a single day they don't feel part of the people of God. In every blessing we give to our kids, we include that. May they never know alone. May they never feel in their heart alone. May they always feel part of the people of God. May they always know I have people. If you're trying to be Wonder Woman, you're doing it wrong. And this is for men too. You are not you were not made to do it alone. None of us were. We were made for community. We were made for this. We were made for one another. I love that Catherine uh, Booth told her kids that every single day, that you were not put here for yourself. You're put here for others, and they're waiting for you. So as we go to the table tonight, um,